Hi, how are you doing? Doing very good. It's a great pleasure being here. Excellent, excellent. Now, where, where are you? Uh, I'm actually in my living room, so where I spent the last one and a half years. Uh, and the, my, this living room is in Cologne, so um, that's where I'm living, though. I'm actually working in Bochum at the Ruhr University, so that's quite a bit commuting back and forth. But uh, yeah, lately this was mainly my office. Right, okay. But you just said you've not been out of that room for a year and a half. No, I have uh, been so grocery shopping, but I think we really haven't been to our official offices, really just quite rarely. So um, I would say, you know, what last in a one and a half year, maybe like three times. So we're now slowly starting to get back, but we really did very strict home offices and uh, teaching was online. Um, research meetings have been online. And I think now that vaccinations rolling out, um, we try to go a bit back to normal, but uh, still very, very cautious and very slowly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, how, how's it been for you in terms of keeping your work going and and doing things that you like to do? And... Actually, I think the first the first part was not that bad. I was actually like not commuting back and forth and just like getting up, getting directly to the desk. So at the beginning, I had the feeling I, I got way more stuff done. Also not having like coffee chats with your with your colleagues. So there was a lot of focus. But I think then this kind of stress was coming in of like being isolated and being alone. And then this directly getting up and getting to your desk is something quite becoming rather bad than at, at the beginning, when you're still motivated, you can you can get more done. But then it was more like procrastinating and st staring at the uh, um, at the screen. So I think that now I'm really happy and looking forward to have real human social interaction. I think this entire thing was like very big thing showing that the beginning it can be nice to also not have social action like no social dates no meetings like the entire weekend just starting and thinking like what i'm going to do today yeah. <laughs> um but after a while at least for me i know like everyone experiences differently i was like recognizing that my cognitive abilities and my emotional abilities were definitely going down yeah yeah and it's fascinating because um yeah, if you think about your your area of study, your area of expertise, and, and we're going to go into that, of course, and, and how that relates to, to your experience of what it's been like to have to change your working practices and, and just what it's like to, to be you. Do, you. do you ever sort of stop and think about that, you know, your, your philosophy kind of work-wise, but then is that what you do personally as well? Well, I think that's an interesting question because, I mean, normally it might seem that for us philosophers, there's no big difference, right? We sit alone in our offices, we write, we think, read papers. So why do we actually need that? And I think this is often kind of the idea. But to be fair, I think the best part about philosophy and academic philosophy is like discussing your work with others, like having people who say, you're wrong about that, or uh, have you thought about what you actually mean by this or that? And I think that, of course, we've tried to simulate this via Zoom and so on, but I think it's not the same. People are not as um, sensitive. I think you lose attention quite easily, and often you have the best part after you actually, for instance, you gave a talk, you get the Q&A, but the best part is after that, when also the people who are afraid, like too afraid of asking in a plenary, they come later and ask good questions or people who are like, I just needed like a little bit more time to think about it and now have to say something. So um, I think also working condition changed for us uh, in this sense. Uh, yeah, I think that was definitely a big part of like how um, philosophical work life also changed, though I know that at least we could do something, right? So I know many people could do anything. Yeah, no, I, I've noticed... Uh... Because the last, well, obviously lockdown, but before that, probably the five years before that, I, I spent a lot of time going to these small meetings um, where they're often dominated with philosophers. Um, and and I, I didn't really ask questions because I, you know, it was way, it was way over my head. Um, but it's fascinating to see how that works, the, the dynamic and the, the discussion. And the, as you said, there's, there's a tension there. But it, but it always feels, I'm sure it's not always, but to me it felt really positive whereas in scientific discussions it feels like it gets really personal whereas for philosophy it's just kind of that's the way it is i would say half half 
Um, so I think that in a very good philosophical discussion, it's exactly as you described. So you don't take this kind of a personal level. It's like asking critical questions is super important and bringing up objections is just like everyday business. But I mean, you can you you get like differences in atmospheres, and I think there are also philosophy conferences where you have like discussions where few people feel uncomfortable because what you described, you have the feeling like okay, it's no longer about the topic; it's kind of getting personal. But I think that at least having a debate in itself is something that's very positively evaluated in philosophy. Um, but I have to say that I've also been to um, like mixed conferences. So, for example, with psychologists and philosophers. And I actually had the feeling that in psychology, it's often very, very constructive in the sense of like, have you tried out this methodology or have you thought about applying this to this or that group, for example? Well, in philosophy, we, of course, always want to be right. <laughs> I mean, not saying that we are, but it's not just about, OK, we want to go into this direction and we do this as a team. I mean. Of course, often in bigger research group, we also try to do that, but still we kind of want to be right. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. Um, yeah, but I like to be fair, I really like this about philosophy that there's like this discussion culture and always trying to like put the finger in the wound and like say like, but what do you mean by that? But and, and things like that. So it's like so yeah. so I mean you kind of answered what, what I wanted to ask then. You know, what is it about philosophy that you that you love? And, and that's part of it. Are there, I mean, what, what got you into philosophy in the first place? Oh, that, that's kind of a longer story. So I think when I, uh, in high school, I actually had a philosophy teacher. And in Germany, it's like you have to take the religion class, classes. So it's mandatory for everyone. And if you don't want to take it, you have to do philosophy. So my main reason to go into philosophy was that I really didn't like religion classes. <laughs> so I left and went into philosophy. And I really had an amazing teacher who already did everything with us so we um everything I did I think later on in the first two years of my bachelor I already did in high school with her and we were a course of three people so it was like I got my own philosophy it's lit like Platon like we were sitting in this garden and then we just discussed about everything we always wanted to talk about from Platon to Hume to Descartes to um modern uh, metaphysics and uh, yeah I think that was really motivated me to say okay I want to study philosophy and my parents were crazy enough to support me in doing that because my father studied philosophy as well. And he was like, how can I deny her doing this too? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And then I studied philosophy and psychology and actually this kind of combination state in the realm of my interest in saying that, especially understanding the mind, understanding a little bit also more clinical aspects of the mind and, uh, Understanding us, us, I so I started especially with emotions and uh, psychopathologies, and from there kind of went into into the pain research area. But I think for me it was always like asking questions. I think that was like you never stop learning. I mean, you do this in none of the sciences, but I I think I was especially excited about philosophy that asking questions and uh, yeah, being being critical about almost everything. This idea if you have to question everything, you always have to consider you're wrong. I kind of really like this idea. Yeah, yeah. So, so back in high school, then did did it feel like you were just in the right place then when you started this philosophy course? Was it sort of like this is it? This is great. I feel very comfortable here doing this all this thinking and questioning. Yeah, definitely. I was, yeah, definitely felt this way. And I think by then when I was six or something, I said, I'm going to be a philosophy professor. And my parents were like, oh yeah, of course. <laughs> and now, I mean, I'm not yet there, but at least I'm trying. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, what, what's the dream then? Yeah, I think it would be awesome to be a professor at one point. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's very, very difficult, like in the academic system to, to get your own share and so on. But I mean, at least it's worth trying, right? And there's a lot of awesome things to do on this way. So I think it's not just about that, but it's definitely for me about the, having the, maybe the opportunity to stay in the academic system or at the university or university-related institutes for the rest of my career. That would definitely be a great opportunity to have. Yeah. Yeah, no, no, for sure. And, you know, I, I, like, to, I like to ask because... You know, I've I've met some you know some amazing philosophers and scientists, men men and women, and um, and it's always struck me. You know, historically, it seems that it's it has been much harder for for women to to make progress. But it seems like things are changing. But you know, I'm coming through a male's eyes. You know, I recognise my own bias. 
what, what's that been like for you? Yeah, I think it's definitely getting better, but the numbers are still striking. So I think that a lot of areas in which way more women are there. So this typical, you know, like the bottleneck, especially for women. So that you have a lot of philosophy students that are female, but later on, it's really getting rare. And I think at most institutes where I was when I started, there was no female professor at all. Um, to be fair, I was really lucky. Uh, so where I did my PhD, I had a group of very um, impressive, smart female postdocs who like took me a bit under the wing. <laughs> and uh, I think that is quite encouraging to have these kind of networks where you see how other people deal with that. And I definitely think it's getting better. But uh, yeah, it's... Uh, I think sexism, and this is still a problem in a lot of different fields in science where you have the same or quite similar experiences. And I think already that for me, as being like a, a white female person from an academic background, it's already easier than for other kinds of women, I think, um, and people also from other minorities in this group. And that's why I think that especially like representation and having this kind of role models was for me very, very important to see and to just have people to chat about those problems, to ask, like, to me, this and that happened, like, is this normal? And then people say, like, no, it's not. They, they should not say something. I mean, I don't know. You think my first conference where I was, someone just refused to answer my question. And then the guy two rows behind me asked the same question and it got answered. And then the guy behind me came later to me and was like, that's an awesome question. But, you know, the guy who gave the talk, he's just not answering questions from young women. And I was like, what? Wow. <laughs> Um, and I mean, I, I just really hope that, sorry, like oh, 10 years ago, I just hope that things like that s stop happening and that we have to be more sensitive to these kinds of things. Yeah. And that there are really a lot of amazing female professors already and female philosophers um, in philosophy of mind and also in other fields. But I mean, of course, I work more in philosophy of mind, being more aware of that. Uh, but yeah, it's still I'm quite uh, optimistic, but I think it takes time and a lot of work of course yeah no no no, definitely definitely no that's that's great to hear so thinking about pain then it's inevitable we needed to get around to this i mean how how did you get into into pain what's what's your interest so i think the beginning was really that i worked on emotions and if you look into philosophy of motion then pain is often like a footnote like because pain, that's the simple thing. Let's talk about emotions. Or it's said like pain, this is like the thing that feels a certain way, but that's all we can say about pain. I mean, this is really, I think, maybe the thought of Socrates, who said like pain is this kind of phenomenal quality thing. It's this certain kind of feeling that we have, but that's all we can say about it. And um, I think to a certain degree for a long time, that was just everything that was said about pain and philosophy. And then I think, especially in the last 10 years, there was really like a literature developing that was really saying, let's let's have a look at pain. And not just in the sense of like what our linguistic intuitions might be. I mean, the typically analytic method of like, okay, what are the necessary and sufficient conditions for pain? Maybe we can agree on that this is a certain feeling. So we talk when we talk about pain, we talk about a certain feeling thing that we have and that we at best maybe identify with reports. So when a person say they are in pain, they are in pain, think they're so important for ethical and methodological reasons. But what else can we know about pain? And I think that was when, when in the literature it became more exciting. And uh, I then came across the book of Colin Klein. Um, he published What the Body Commands. It's a very theory about the relation between pain and action. And uh, yeah, uh, that was like where I was like, okay, I want to know more about that. And then I had this completely crazy project in mind of like I'm going to look into every single science and see do I find something that's common to all and only pains so do I find something besides the feeling we have where we can say like okay this is this is our biological marker for pain this is our this is the cause of pain this is the effect of pain this is like the sensory property of pain so the one thing that we find and um I think along this way, I, I didn't answer all this question, but I think along the way, a particular came, it's like you open one box when it comes to pain, and then there's another question. You open another box, and there's another question. And I was really, in the end, I was so frustrated because a lot of philosophical texts start with pain, a simple sensation. And then it's like, there's nothing about pain that's simple in any way. And um yeah, that's kind of how the pain journey started, that I were particularly saying, okay, I'm going to ask a typical philosophical question about 
a condition that's always present and that's specific to pain, but really have a look at the empirical sciences and try to use conceptual tools from philosophy to answer these kinds of questions. And I, this was kind of mainly my PhD project. And since then, I've been doing a going in different directions where, so to say, loose ends where, where I had the feeling I didn't really answer this question or yeah, stuff that when you write a PhD is just a footnote and then it turns out like, oh my God, you could write an entire book just about this footnote. I know it always is. So, so when, when was that? When, when did your interest get sparked and you started asking these questions around your PhD? I think, um, so really when I started my PhD, I didn't know anything about pain and I really started reading Kripke and I think half a year in, I already recognized like literature is messy. Um, it's, it's really not always clear whether they talk about the same, same thing. So some talk actually about nociception and not about pain. Yeah. Some actually talk about the concepts so or the folk concept of pain, which is again, a completely different thing. So um, I think like in, in most scientists, clinical practice and philosophy talk about pain as a mental experience, but there's like a few investigations that the term pain might actually be ambiguous. So in, everyday life, people might actually talk about other, other things, um, which is tricky when we want to communicate with each other, especially between medical stuff and uh, patient, for example. Yeah. And also that there's like really no clear idea of even if we agree on pain as this kind of sensation thing, what this means and uh, how we can explain this, like in neural terms. I was quite fascinated by the neuroscience of pain and I was like, I it was so complicated and I was so fascinated by the fact that there's no pain marker or like no pain cortex, no pain matrix, no. Um, because I was always thinking like, come on, with neuroscience, we know so much. And then it comes to pain. And I think pain is just an awesome example in which whatever philosophical debate we go, because it's such a paradigmatic example of human life. And it's so frustrating and fascinating at the same time, I think. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you're right. I mean, the, to take the neuroscience, I mean, it's it is exceptionally complex. It's as complex as any you know thing that you want to study biologically. You you go more and more micro, 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 and all the different chemicals and receptors. But then, as you said, the, the way it's communicated, you know, when you're actually reading the papers, it's not always clear exactly what that the author's writing about, even to the point of you know which which type of nerve. Um, is, is are they referring to in that particular moment? So as the reader, you can be completely bamboozled um, or, or take away completely the wrong messages. And that, that seems to be one of the fundamental problems around, around pain is, is the misunderstanding on, on any level, whether it be you who's suffering, you who's treating, you who's studying it. Um, what, what, what is it? What are we talking about? Yeah, I think that's that's a fair question. And, and I think in part it has to do with the problem that if you put pain and you you, you phrase it in a certain way, it sells better. <laughs> I think that's in part really a problem with publication biases and so on that we have. Um, but despite that, I think the problem is sometimes that there's a difference between which kind of terms we use and, for instance, which kinds of tasks we then use to test for this. So we can say this all is somehow about pain because somehow pain experiences are involved. But in one case, we actually test electrophysiological stimulation and what it does, uh, what then people report, but not really whether they report pain, but how they report their pain, for example. And in other cases, it's about nociceptive processing, which is also somehow associated with pain. So, um, yeah, it's, it's definitely important to be to be very precise about these things. But at the same time, um, so I also recommend I'm not a neuroscientist. I think it's really tricky because pain seems to require a multidisciplinary approach. But I mean, a single person will never be able to actually do this, at least in, in much detail. And I mean, as a philosopher, I'm already like in a... Um, I would say so in a luxurious position that I don't need to learn the different methods, but I'm, I can look at all the different data and try to understand and like merge them already a little bit. But um, I mean, even I, I, I couldn't have done any of that without interdisciplinary um, help uh, and also not like have a neuroscientist who are willing to chat with me and like clinicians who are willing to chat with me. And 
and um, also in part patients who are like I had chats with and uh, still I think most of that for, for a single person this is just impossible and therefore I think you're completely right like being good translators is very important like from one science to the next from clinic to non-clinic uh, also from research to clinic I mean this is also I have never worked in, in clinical context and I've learned so much just from like listening to what Peter and Mick and Laura and other people um what they have to say about this. Yeah. Yeah. No, fair enough. I was chatting to someone earlier on today, actually, about they, they want to pursue, um, you know, a line of, of getting more into understanding pain and working with more complex people. And um, and I said, you know, it's, it's so broad. You know, once you've got the basic science and that takes long enough, if I mean, you could spend your whole career on the science. Um, but but beyond that, it goes. It's so broad. The things that you need, the skills that you need, um, and it was. And when I did the pain masters with Mick back in the early two thousands um, at Kings, we did this little exercise where we tried to work out. I mean, this is from a clinician perspective. What would be the ideal clinician working with someone with with pain? Um, and. And you know you can get pretty close with with a background, say in with with some you know as, as a physio with some psychology, with some nursing, with some coaching and, and other ingredients in there. And and there are some people like that. Um, but but to be an absolute expert in each fit, that, that's just never going to happen, as you said, never going to happen. Um, but I said to this, this chap I was talking to earlier that, that one of the skills would be copywriting. Because as a copywriter, you've got to take, you've got to research, take information and then create really clear cut messages about what it is that you're, you're trying to say. When we think about the confusion that can occur. For, I mean, even, you know, nociception and pain is still largely confused or, or you know spoken about as, as interchangeable somehow yeah and i think it's super also interesting like where these intuitions are coming from or where these implicit assumptions that we have are coming from because i think that intuitively at least also when i um, when you investigate what the intuitions of people are they really have a strong idea that there's a connection between injury and pain I think this is because in the paradigmatic cases in which you can see your injury, this is often not always the case. And things like, oh, of course, my pain might be influenced by emotions, social context, and so on. This is not as visible as, for example, a bone that's sticking out of my arm is actually. And with a lot of other pains like visceral pains, where often there is no injury, we don't know because we can't see it. So maybe they are quite, so this might be one reason why we have that. But of course, the other question is also, where else do these beliefs actually come from? And I mean, at least some studies also seem to indicate that this comes from clinicians and that this comes from the way in which we talk about these things. And the fact that, for example, as I said before, like that the English and also the German term pain can be ambiguous in different ways, and especially the English term that we use it for the injury and for our experience it's quite intriguing, I think, for everyday people to, to just think that this is actually the case. And then the question is, of course, how education can take place. And I think that I'm, as a philosopher, really the one person to do that. Mm. So I don't, don't know much about that. And I think that a lot of people working in clinical practice are well more experts in that. But I think it's such an interesting thing also because philosophers uh, often have this idea. So one of the most prominent philosophical theories are indicative or representationalist theories who have the idea that what pains are about, so what their function is, is to indicate body damage and or some kind of bodily condition. And so in philosophy, this idea is also quite, uh, quite dominant. Um, and... Uh, so, yeah, there, there is, I think, something to it that we actually believe that and to get this somehow out of the people's mind or at least to allow for more flexibility. Like, yes, sometimes, yes, sometimes, no, is a really tricky thing. And um, yeah, it's from from the paper that I know you you best for. It, it feels like you, you're trying to help society, everyone really move, move on. And, and sort of build on the, the biopsychosocial model, um, which is better than the biomedical model, but obviously has some, you know, problems. 
um, you, you proposed something else. It'd be great to hear about that um, in a sec. But but is that your primary purpose at the moment? Would you say to to do that to achieve this this because philosophy can be in an armchair, but it seems that you want to make something really practical here, something really useful for to make a difference in the world. Yeah, so I think my previous work was primarily about getting a philosophy that's empirically adequate. So there was this step from science or from clinical practice and what we know there to philosophy to first make our philosophical theories match to what our best empirical theories look like. So if we if we say in philosophy, oh, there's this one thing that's common to all pain and specific for them, but science tells us completely otherwise, then at least if we want to have a theory about pain in our world and not pain in some um possible other word, uh, then at least we need to do that. And I think there I have not thought much about what could be a practical implication of that. So I had very few ideas of like, yeah, maybe this could be useful for neuroscience, what I developed, but rather really for research. And I think it kind of started just after my PhD and uh, that I was lucky to meet Peter in a conference and to really starting to get in contact with clinical practice and try to better understand this and to there see a bit more of like, A, what I was surprised at, how much philosophy is there in clinical practice? So I know that researchers often make certain kind of assumptions, but they're often quite, um, not always, but they're more explicit. But when talking also to Peter and others had the feeling in clinic practice, there are a lot of philosophical assumptions, actually, but they are quite implicit. And I thought that this was very interesting than try to find out what these kind of assumptions are. And yeah, more from a philosophical perspective to ask what kind of consequences would follow from that if we think this through also for clinical practice. So um, yeah, I would say that this is kind of uh, what I'm doing right now. So I have a few other projects that are related on something completely different. So also a bit pain unrelated, but in the pain area, this is kind of what I primarily try to do uh, and what also Peter and I try to do. Um, and so in follow-up papers that we're trying to write right now, some more for philosophers, so also the paper you're referring to is it's quite technical still, but we also try to write a few that are a bit better, so have maybe um, less philosophical terms, but going more practically, so making more connections to clinical practice than the one we have right now. Yeah, yeah. Well, that I mean, that comes across in, in that paper with, um, with Peter. Um, so may, maybe you could describe, I mean, uh, in summary, because you could probably talk about it for days. Uh, there's a lot. There's a lot to it, and there's a lot of stuff that will spin off from from that. But how, how would you describe it? Um, I would say that the paper has two main parts or two main questions that it's quite addressing that we call the static and the dynamic question. And maybe to start with the dynamic question first, because this has to do with the biopsychosocial models, kind of the question, okay, let's say chronification is a process. And in this process, we might accept we have biological aspects, we have psychological aspects, and we have social aspects. This is kind of what the biopsychosocial model and angle is giving us. And then the question is a bit, but how do these three things actually relate to each other? So what, what's that's kind of the main question. That's something that, for instance, Sonica Dehan calls the integration problem. And there seems to be different nuances to it. But one of the main questions is really to ask, how do we understand them? And um, one aspect that we try to highlight is that quite often they are actually not addressed at all. It's still quite better biomedicalized, even if we say, yeah, biopsychosocial, then we just talk about the bio part. Um, the second thing is that they are quite fragmented sometimes so that it's actually we say, okay, we have this block of factors, this block of factors and the, uh, the third one, but we don't really try to understand how they relate often also. And I mean, that's also one point we make because this is entire super complex. Um, so, I mean, more and more complexity is actually added to it that we then actually, that's what we're arguing for, that we have to also understand how they reciprocally interact. So it's not just one of them causes the other one, but it also has like a back feedback loop, so to say, that over time we have to see how they develop. And of course, in most cases, we can assume that this is going to be unitary for every patient, but maybe we can find certain regularities that allow to make at least like probability claims or say, identify certain kind of patterns that can be useful for clinical practice. Those, of course, have to be evidence-based. But we think that accepting this complexity 
in favor of just saying, oh, then just focus on the biological thing because it's a, it's a simple thing. Um, but we say that we have to kind of embrace these complexities and to also say, okay, there's going to be certain uncertainties that come with this. If you have a, you say, okay, you have pain type X, then we have solution medication Y. We say every time you take this, your pain is going to go away. This, you have a strict regularity. It sounds nice. It would be nice if it would be this case, right? It would make all our lives easier. What we try to say is like, it's not that easy and um, kind of affects of certain treatments is not, not going to be proportional to how much effort you put into it. It might still not work out. Your pain might still be resistance. Even if you get rid of the original course, there might already be certain kind of feedback loops that just keep the pain going. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, with the dynamic aspect, I think this is one of the, the main aspects we are actually arguing for, which of course also motivates certain kind of uh, multidisciplinary approaches and also certain approaches where you rather zoom out so you don't just look at certain body part but you try to see the person you try to see the different aspects that make this person that are important to the person and that need to be taken into account as well yeah yeah i mean there's that's always been one of the ultimate questions isn't it what what is it that that takes the person from from an acute problem to a chronic one and, and when does that really happen you know it's in textbooks, the, the, the idea that, that, you know, at three months you become chronic. I mean, that, that's never made any sense. Um, and you think, well, at what point was this person potentially going to become someone who would experience chronic pain? You know, the before, all the befores, the, you know, for example, early life traumas or, or previous pains, the situation when the injury happened, you know, all, all of those kinds of things. How likely do they, do they make it that this person's going to experience persistent pain? From a clinician viewpoint, it's kind of easy to, you know, when someone's suffering and then they say, oh, yeah, I had this, this and this go on to kind of just go, oh, well, that's why that's that's the reason why I think that's that's lazy and too easy to just make that that assumption. I mean, not not to ignore it. I think it's an important part of the story, but there's there's a zillion other factors as well. Yeah, I think that's a good point. So I don't think that there's ever the one point where a person becomes chronic. That's just if in a process that's so dynamic, I think there's no point. So there might be key events, maybe. So key factors. Uh, but I think even there, even if we then address them, that's no, like you don't have a guarantee that this is actually going to work out. Um, I think it's of course important to search for them. And I mean, we also said this in the paper, of course, if someone is, for example, having uh, a tumor in the brain and the person's like constantly having pain, uh, a headache, then one first step should be, of course, to try to treat this because this could be for this person, a very good thing to do. It's quite likely that this is the cause. But you might, I think, and this is our, the, the, the majority of people that are in, in, in treatment and also in treatment for very long are those where we don't have it this way and where there might have been an injury, but there no longer is, for example, or there has never been and or maybe in a completely other part of the body. And that these cases are really the tricky ones. Mm -hmm. And um, that it's, of course, also difficult when you have patients who want to, to find something bodily. I mean, I even recognize this with myself. If I have pain somewhere, I expect there to be something wrong. And I know better still, <laughs> I expect this. It's so, yeah, it's such an unflexible intuition that people I think have. And if I go to the doctor and I mean, I'm not a chronic pain patient, but I want the doctor to look at my arm when I have a pain in my arm and not somewhere else. And I, I think this is also the tricky thing to really keep this in mind and to also not over-educate and explain in the sense to your patient, like, no, you're wrong. I mean, this is still a belief that they have, that, that this belief plays an important role in the experience. But at the same time, it's like, yeah, it's always, it's a balancing act, so to say, because of course, it's not about saying the biological thing doesn't play a role. Um, I think this is often important also when I'm like, I'm so fascinated by the brain and still always saying, the brain is not all. We should look at the other stuff. Of course, it's super important to understand the brain and the body, but um, to be a bit more open to say, it's not just about that. It's a lot about how things interact and about being open that this is going to be a really, really complex thing and that we together have to 
bring an effort to understand this and to find ways uh, to solve these kinds of problems. And I mean, I'm, I'm quite aware that especially when it comes to big data collections on these kind of complex things, we will need models to get along with this and we need ways to educate clinical practitioners to get, as we talked about before, to handle this as a single person. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, look, I'm totally with you and, and have, right from way back when I trained to be a nurse to 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 see a person, not a body part or a, or a body system. Um, but but I think it's it's reasonable if, if my arm hurts to expect whoever I go to see to to get some help that they look at my arm. Um, and I think as a clinician, I think it's very important that you do look at the place where it where yeah. it hurts but clearly not be surprised if you find nothing at all. Um, you know, most of the biology of pain, as we've said, there's nothing specific, but most of the biology that's involved somehow with pain is, is not actually where you feel it. Yeah, and I mean, in some cases, if you look hard enough, you always find something weird, uh, and I'm using it, um, <laughs> Uh, in the sense about the bodies of people, but this might have really nothing to do with their pain experiences. And I think that's always like, if you really search for a biological cause in the sense of like, you just want to find something biological abnormal, you will always or most likely gonna find something if you just use enough enough methods to test a person on something. And they, yeah, that's also then the question of how, how useful this actually is. But uh, these, are, these are really tricky questions. And I think especially, and I think that's one of the questions where I'm really not the expert, but I think it's super fascinating. Is even if we would know what the best theory for us as researchers or as clinicians is, this does not necessarily mean that this is the best theory to educate uh, to or to directly just like, here's a book, read it as a two patients and to say like, this is all you need. Yeah. Um, so um, I'm not sure uh, how these things directly translate because I think it's often like a cascade and there's already like the tricky part of communicating beyond among researchers and among researchers and clinical practitioners and then clinical practitioners as patients. And I mean, again, it doesn't make it easier, just more complex. <laughs> yeah, 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 no, for sure, for sure. Going deeper into, into your model, I mean, you, you use anactomism, you're coming through that, that lens. Maybe you could just say a little bit about what, what that is, because it's a word that's increasingly being seen around in the kind of literature, a lot of well, the physios who would listen to this um, are going to come across that. So just to sort of describe or define what it is and... Yeah, um, so anactomism, I would say, is a family of theories that put a focus, especially on the interactive and embodied relation between the subject and the environment. And they, I think they really do so in different manners. Um, so uh, they're really also different nuances and different people who defend different streams. But I think like the overall picture is really that if we want to understand a certain phenomenon, we really need to consider the person with their body, with their brain, with their beliefs, with their thoughts in their physical and social environment and understand how these things intact. Um, so with respect to the dynamic question that I, that I said before, here in activism, this is really an idea steaming from that to say, okay, we need to understand the dynamic processes that go on between all these different kinds of things. None of the domains is more important. All of them need to be considered. And it's not really easy to tell them apart. So Sanika Dehan, who has written an amazing book, it's called An Active Psychiatry. She there has the metaphor of always saying like one of the basic ideas of an activism is really that biological, psycho and social aspects work like ingredients for a cake. So you put them all together, then you put the, the cake in the oven. When you bring it back, all of them have interacted. So the sugar, the flour, the eggs, you cannot just tell them apart. The elements are not like they are unchanged by being part of this causal mechanism or this causal process that are taking place. And if we take this, so to say, to, to the patient, then it's like we cannot fix the patient. We cannot, it's not a machine where all the different components interact. They remain the same. So we say, okay, we try here, the biological doesn't work. Then we try here in the psychological. But all of these things are continuously interacting with each other. And um, I mean, there's more ontological background sometimes to that. So some really say, okay, 
um, that there's like a flat hierarchy, for example. So really nothing is reducible to other things. Some say it's more in an epistemological sense, but I think the basic idea is really uh, to say uh, we cannot just tear these things apart and then reduce this all to the biological, but we have to understand how these things go together in their dynamic interaction. And I think a second part, what's really often highlighted in an activism, what we thought is so attractive about is that it's action orientated. So it's really saying that action and how we interact with the world plays an important role for many things. And we took this and then also asked, like, what is happening with respect to the action orientatedness of a person in chronic pain? And so the book I was motivated by to do philosophy of pain. So from Colin Klein, he has an idea really about this action, how philosophy, uh, how pain and action relate to each other. And I think he was the first where I was like, this sounds really plausible to me that action somehow plays a role in pain. So pain motivates us to do things. Um, and, but how does it actually do this? And how important is this maybe also to understand chronic pain? And this was a little bit where we were going, we were saying, can we try to understand this from a subjective perspective? So coming in uh, also tradition from phenomenology, um, and then trying to ask, okay, what does uh, acute pain, for example, to our experience of the world in terms of the action possibilities that it offers? And there seem to be okay it's really changing in a dynamic manner i burn my hand then i want to put it onto cold water so this action possibility might seem very important and very attractive to me um so if i have a broken bone i might not want to put weight on it there seems to be an action maybe taking the elevator instead of the chair the uh, the stairs might appear more attractive but normally it doesn't really change a lot of like what's important to me it's really just like a short term fixation of certain actions and it's very flexible if one thing doesn't work maybe the pain might motivate me to do something else and the interesting thing was then to see but what's happening in chronic pain and there's some literature in the philosophy so an active philosophy of psychiatry on certain phenomenon where they have already tried to develop something like this for ocd or for example for depression to look there at neurological data, but especially, of course, on data, on qualitative data, on data from pain reports from individuals, um, on behavioral data to try to get a first idea of what is, so to say, happening there. And one of the main insights for us was there that pain experience especially seem to make things less attractive. So when we're growing pain, less action possibilities seem attractive to us, or they seem even as things to be avoided. Like when we are afraid of something, then it's not just not attractive to do it, but we really want to stay away from it. And that this seems to happen in chronic pain. So the world is a hostile place, a place of, um, that's the term that uh, Regina Fabri also used for depression, is saying it's a place of impossibilities. So it's no longer a place where we can act as active and self-controlled agents. We are rather controlled by the world constraints and limits us in what we can do. And that this really begins, and especially I think therefore time often plays a role, it really gets to who we are. So the pain really becomes a part of who we experience ourselves to be, while our body becomes something very um, negative. So it becomes an obstacle. So normally we would assume that our body is something that we don't focus on. That's a typical idea from phenomenologists and especially from embodied phenomenology that the idea is like when I do something I drink from my cup I don't focus on my hand I focus on the cup my body just does things for me without me needing to focus really on it's quite automatic when we learn new techniques we often have to focus on it and pain also does this to a certain degree it focuses on the body but in chronic pain, it does this the entire time. And this is quite, it's exhausting. And that's, so to say, the way where the body is in the way of our world interaction with the world. Yeah, that was kind of a bit of the idea where, where we are going for that to really say, okay, this might be that in chronic pain, our feeling of the body changes, our feeling of the world changes, and also thereby our feeling of ourselves, of what we can do. So we are no longer really like able to, person who are able to do things, to do things with our bodies. And that changing pain on maybe the person not getting rid of the pain, but to make pain a manageable part of life can be to change these things. So to make people get back control, to give them hope for change and that they don't have the expectations of being trapped in their situations or 
to really bring the attention, that's a very basic example, away from the body. So when we do exercises, not say, do this or that with your hands, but do this and this with the cup. So bringing the attention to possibilities and abilities of what people can do. And um, yeah, we have tried to use a lot of different insight. I mean, that we didn't make this up all on ourselves. There has a lot of research that's already been done on this before by, um, by other people that we've tried to integrate and really, yeah, I think the paper was a summary of all the different stuff where we thought like so often we were reading something like this is the next puzzle piece that fits in here. And that's a puzzle piece that fits in here. We were like quite excited if you start working on that, that there, there's a lot of things that actually kind of seem to go together if you do this zooming out and try to see how, um, yeah, how the different things fit together. I've been already yeah. talking for so long, sorry. <laughs> no, no, I mean, that's, that's superb. Um, and, and it massively resonates with the way that, so as I was reading, you know, the paper, there was loads of, yeah, 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 moments, because it just absolutely resonates with the kind of approach that, that, um, that I've been using. Um, and, and, you know, looking for possibilities rather than, than problems, looking for, you know, opportunities rather than obstacles. And it takes that, that, that shift and this loss of sense of self and, and who you are and your role. So all of those things you've spoken of, you know, those, all those meetings with the, you know, the people looking at consciousness and understanding what it's like to be that person and, and what's going on behind that. It just all kind of feeds in to, to exactly as you're describing. And you're so, you know, you're so close in, in your description as to, to give meaning behind what people will be saying about their own experiences. Um, what, I mean, actually one thing that struck me around that when you say about action and, and pain, it, it always makes me think of action and perception and Alvin knowing that, that kind of, or action in perception and being the same side of the, or two sides of the same coin, all that sort of, I always have an issue with the same side of the two coin because that's still somehow here and here. But anyway, but, but it's kind of action in perception. What does that mean anything to you? Yeah, I mean, of course, the, the question how action and perception go together is quite a big one uh, in the field of like situated cognition where we are located there. I don't think uh, that I can give like a like final answer to that. But I, what I definitely think is that um, I would agree with something that rather comes from phenomenology, namely that we can perceive the world independent of action. So in the sense of how we perceive it, I can perceive this cup really just as a cup of what I can do with this, like, like from a pure observer point of view. But I would say what we mostly do in everyday life is that we navigate our world as people who do stuff with their environment. And that when we come into a room, we focus a lot on the things that we can do something with, depending in which state we are right now. When I'm hungry, I'm opening the fridge and look for something that now fits to my hunger. And if I'm thirsty, I open the fridge and I particularly see potential for something to drink. And um, I would, if, we, if we allow for this and say, okay, we don't have to say it's always the same, but really say like a lot of our experience are really guided by, by actions and our, for instance, in which state our body is. So this kind of idea that if we have a big backpack, we perceive a mountain as uh, higher than if we don't have. And if our blood sugar level is higher, we might perceive the mountain as lower. I think that at least from this phenomenal idea, um, we often perceive that we might often not recognize this, but I think in cases in which this changes, we become aware of that. And I think that especially there is awesome work has already been done like on OCD, for example, but also on depression where this kind of phenomena have been investigated or how our sense of reality is changing and other kind of, um, of disorders. And this is quite interesting. I see not to say that this must be the final theory of mind, but I think that it can help understand lived experience if we take this perspective. Yeah. Um, yeah. You mentioned about the, the, and I've puzzled with this one because the, the cup or, or I've got a pencil here, I can perceive that while I'm holding it. So I'm actually doing something, but if it's there on the desk there and I'm looking at it, am I still not doing something? My eyes are still you know, got the little movements and, and I'm turning my body to, to look at the pencil. So am I, am I still not acting to, to perceive that? 
No, it would be fine to say that you're acting there. So, I mean, I would definitely say that there's like a constant, like this basic idea, there's perception, then processing, then action. Uh, I would say that there's so constant feedback and this dynamic processing. So I definitely would agree with this kind of idea that we, that, I mean, there's sometimes then this idea that action is before perception. I mean, I don't know, this is like a bit like what has been there first, the egg or the hen, you know, that's yeah. kind of the question. But I would say what you describe, I would be perfectly fine with accepting that and saying that this is this is happening all the time so that we constantly move and interact and uh, update our um, our info, our input in this sense. And that it's also, I mean, when it comes, for instance, to brain processing, it's not that simple to say, and here's the sensory processing taking place, and here's the cognitive processing taking place. And then here comes the motor stuff that does the output. Um, I think also that this is just what we know about neural connectivity and neural reuse. That's just simply an outdated picture. I just wanted to say, I'm not sure whether we have to buy then everything from typical somatic, like from Maui's theory, but I mean, I think there's a lot to it to think more about which role action can play. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Would fully agree with that. There was, you, when you were giving the example of the fridge then, some, something really struck me about, uh, about pain. So th this is it, and then you can tell me what, what you think. So I'm, I'm hungry. And I go to the fridge expecting there to be food in the fridge. And I go to the fridge and I open it and there's cheese. I love cheese. So I have some cheese and, and I, ah, great, I feel good. That's fine. Shut the fridge and, and off I go. And so I've got this kind of expectation that if I go to the fridge, I'm going to get something to eat. Hopefully it's cheese and, and I'll enjoy it. And then my, my hunger will be dealt with and I, and I move on. Um, then on another day, I'm really hungry and I go to the fridge and open it and, and there's no cheese. And actually, there's nothing else at all apart from a mouldy piece of fruit, <laughs> which, which I really don't want to eat. So I, I won't. So I shut the door and I'm, and I'm hungry. I don't, you know. And, um, and then the next day I go back and I'm hungry. I open the fridge and there's, there's nothing in there. Nothing, not even the mouldy fruit now because I chucked that away. So my somehow now my expectations are starting to, to take a dip to the point where that keeps happening, keeps happening, keeps happening to the point where I don't even bother going to the fridge. There's no point going to the fridge because there's yeah. no food in there. So I'm just going to keep feeling bad. Now, I know that's a really massive oversimplification, but I just see something in that sort of repeated experience. This, the person in pain, initially, they, they expect to get better. They have hope. But treatments don't work. They get the wrong messages, this, that and the other. But essentially, they don't get better. So, so their expectations just somehow switch to being, well, this is just a world of pain now. And that's it. Yeah, I, I think that's a very important part. So I would say at the beginning, the problem sometimes is what, what we do, what seems to reduce the pain is the re one reason why it might last. So if we avoid certain kind of, like I have a broken ankle, I, like, not right now, like oh, imaginary yeah. situation. Sorry. <laughs> sorry, I have to say that. Imagine I have a broken ankle. Yeah. Um, I will not put weight on it. I mean, maybe that's also good for a while, right? I might use crutches and um, it, it feels better because it really hurts if I put weight on it. But at a certain moment in time, I have to use my ankle again. Otherwise, so I would lose muscles and I would just like, it won't be good for me if I just keep like avoiding any kind of things that we do with that. But I mean, with a fractured ankle, we might directly know what to do and when to go back and so on. But especially with unspecific chronic pain, parts might do that. They might like, oh yeah, I'm avoiding the issue this kind of avoidance behavior that's helping me. And then at some point the pain's just lasting. And as you said, you lose your expectations to get back where you want it, where you have been before. And I think that a big part is that if this expectation is really, um, um, say it's like, it's really becoming a, a, like, a, like a stable expectation um, that's really hard to shake right? And then it might work as a self-fulfilling prophecy. So it just keeps the pain up because this is what you expect anyways. And I think this also relates a little bit what you had in your podcast with Mark Miller, which was actually super interesting, that it's very important to shake our own expectations from time to time. Yeah. And 
besides that, this is an important part, I think, actually for scientists as well. I think it might also be for the patients. And then, of course, the question is, what is our best way in which we can shake these expectations? And I think there are different ways, like my slow steps in which you can actually show progress and so really show things can get better. It can be by setting new goals to say, you will not go back to where you've been before. Just have another expectation, namely that you maybe will be able not doing A, but able being able B, and you actually are. And um, yeah, I, I think that there are really many different ways to do that. But I think to having this really rigid expectations is a big problem because normally we are so good in getting around and interacting in our environment when we are highly flexible and adaptive. So when we're willing to change our, so to say, our expectations. So if we're willing to say, okay, maybe today there's something going to be in the fridge or um, maybe that's not the perfect example, but I think really the basic idea is to, to sometimes just challenge ourselves. And I think we normally do this in life over and over again. Someone else is telling us, no, I have a different opinion and to then listen and try to, do I still think this is right? Or just thinking, okay, I can't do this. I wasn't able to do this the last 10 times. But if now someone is providing you a certain context to give it another chance and to become more flexible, I think this is part of the theory we try to construct as well, that really one of the big problems is this being trapped in your own idea of the world is hostile, the world is hopeless, there's no possibility for change. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and Mark talk, you know, talks about this getting stuck or this inflexibility in the system and restoring flexibility. And, and I think, you know, normally we probably are fairly flexible, some, some more than others. Um, and, and of course, you know, if you look at, um, you know, Lisa Feldman Barrett's really fascinating work on the brain as a, as a budgeter, and, and the fact that, you know, when, when you're in, in that state, the brain is conserving energy. So things like learning and moving that use the most energy, uh, we, we're not going to fit our experience of that is we're just not going to have the motivation to do the things that could actually help. So, so it's a very, very difficult situation um, for, for people to be in. Um, but having said that, it does seem from, from, you know, the things you're describing and working on and Mark and, and others and, and clin- lots of clinical experience, that there are ways forward. There are ways forward for people. And we, and we do see that. Um, how optimistic are you about us being able to really help people more and more with to, to, to release themselves from all this suffering around, around pain? So I think that's a tricky question because I can just answer this really from the perspective of a, of a researcher. And I think that I'm always very optimistic. So I'm to say, I see so many interesting research going on, on philosophers, on other sides. Uh, I think also like the work you're doing and many other people were really like, a lot of people seem to be interested in change. At least that's my perspective, but it's kind of a bubble to be fair. And like in this bubble, I got very optimistic. But sometimes when I talk with clinical practitioners or with people like concerned pain patients, I sometimes have the feeling they are less um, optimistic. And I think this has to do with the fact that I don't have experience with the institutions of social health care. And I think whatever we as researchers or very theoretical uh, clinical practitioners think, one of the big barriers of implementing these kinds of things are institutional and Um, I think that's why I'm sometimes more optimistic than others, um, because, yeah, um, this is kind of the things that that I I can't. So that research itself is not going to change. This is going to change through people like you and many others who also try to translate research and science and make it accessible to a broader public. But then also really people who have put so much energy energy into fighting more for the rights of chronic pain patients and that they are heard, that they are also invited to research panels, that they have opportunities to communicate what is going wrong. And then that there are institutions who are really taking the time to find practical solutions, because I think often what we offer, and I mean, that's my job, is solutions on a paper. Um, but there's like, even if we say, oh, awesome, that's the right way to go, then there are 100 further steps until we can implement these kinds of things until we have new physiotherapists, for example, who are educated in a certain way. And I think that's why sometimes I, I'm so optimistic in the ignorance of institutional barriers that are there. Yeah. 
Yeah, but you but you're also aware of that. You know, you're you're looking at where you know you, you might have optimism from from the work that you're you're doing, and, and rightly so, because I you know you're making an enormous contribution and, and you you will never know how much that's rippling out. And there's there's no measure of that. I mean you'll hear back from people and that kind of thing. But but you know your your work and, and Peter and, and others um, is, is making a huge impact and really helping clinicians to think in different ways and creating frameworks to, to work on from. And it's always going to be work in progress. You know, our legacy is going to be that. If we can leave behind, you know, this a, a greater hope, um, much more optimism, then, then that's fantastic because it, it does take time for things to, things to develop and grow and, and evolve. And, um, and it's great. And it's been brilliant to listen to what you have to say about it all. Um, but where, where can people continue to follow your, your excellent work? Uh, so first of all, thanks for this really great compliment. I really appreciate that. Um, um, so my work can particularly be found on uh, my homepage and I'm on Twitter. I'm also on Instagram, but I don't work that much there. So particularly, I think, uh, yeah, on my homepage and um, on my Twitter, that's the easiest way to follow. But also on if you especially if you search for um, papers or something, just let me know. They are normally all linked on my homepage or just sending them and they're writing short summaries of different research projects so that everyone can get a grasp uh, on what I'm actually working. Super. And I'll, I'll put all the links on, on the page anyway, so people can, um, can, can access that. And um, well, I mean, it'd be great to catch up again down the line and sort of see where, where things have gone, where things have gone for you and um, how things have Yeah, gone. it would be great. <laughs> that's, that's my intention with this, is to kind of, you know, catch up with the people that I've spoken to and, and see how things are, things are evolving. So uh, that would be great. Yeah, I, I would also love to listen to what the others because I was already I learned so much from the podcast now. So especially like having chats with Mick and with Mark, uh, I was like, especially with the podcast with Mark, half of the time I was like, this makes so much sense also yeah. with respect to pain. <laughs> yeah, well, look, it, it's a it's a collective, isn't it? And um, and everyone is is you know adding their bit. And you know if we can if we can keep kind of bringing that together, and if something like this this podcast brings people together to to listen to different folk who are doing superb work, then then that's its purpose beyond just having a bit of fun and chatting to um, to cool people, <laughs> which is sort of how it started. Um, so there is a bit of a purpose behind it. So thanks again for for making the time, and um, keep keep in touch. Thanks a lot for having me. Take care.